Hi there and welcome to Fantasy Focus Baseball. It's a beautiful Friday morning, July 3rd, 2020. Kyle Sabi produces and researches our fine show and I give him full credit. I'm Eric Carabell, ESPN senior writer and host of this show. ESPN staff writer June Lee joins us today to discuss the latest in baseball and also the excellent movie Sugar, which I found really, really good. Hello, June. How are you today? Good, good. You know, you know, cautiously excited about baseball and, uh, you know, just a really weird time in the country still. And obviously this is uh, our last week of doing movies. So this has been a really good time. Yes, and we can't thank you enough for the past two or three months. I've lost track of doing movies. I've seen movies I haven't seen before, like Sugar. Um, and I've enjoyed our conversations, and we do appreciate you coming on a fantasy baseball show to talk about movies when you barely play fantasy baseball. So I, I really appreciate it. I know Tristan and Kyle have as well. And I think the listeners have enjoyed it too. We'll get to Sugar in a minute to more important things. Let's start with the news. You're cautiously optimistic, as am I. Has that changed over the past week? For you. Uh, it, it has changed a little bit. You know, I talked to a friend who works in a front office the other day when after kind of players had started reporting and coming back. Uh, and just from the discussions that I had with him, it seems like the players have a sense that this is like it's really going to take a lot of discipline on everyone's part to really, really make this work. And that, uh, you know, there's a lot at stake here beyond just, uh, you know, the wins and losses that there's uh, the health of teammates, the health of teammates, family members. There's a lot at stake here. Uh, and so the fact that players are registering on that level is, is, is good, is I think a good sign, but also, uh, I think, I think teams are starting to be a little bit optimistic just about the fact that, you know, there's testing is going to be really, really crucial towards the success of these sports leagues, uh, being able to identify anyone who gets positive and immediately isolate them on a day to day basis. I think is going to be really, really important. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we're seeing numbers across the country, in states where uh, states are really important for baseball, California, Arizona, Florida, Texas, where a lot of baseball players live. Uh, these numbers are, are, are spiking in ways that we haven't seen yet during this pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of factors at play here, obviously, but uh, you know, I'm definitely, definitely nervous about everything getting started, but a little bit more optimistic than I have been in, in the weeks past. I feel like the NBA and the NHL have it right with their bubbles NBA all in Disney World, NHL likely to end up in just Edmonton and Toronto. I feel like they have a better chance to finish what they start than baseball does. But like you, I am cautiously optimistic. The news this week has generally been about players going on the injured list for unspecified reasons, which we think we know what the reason is. Like the Phillies placed four players on the injured list. It was supposed to be secret, and they'll be let it leak. And now we think Scott Kingery has it and three Phillies players who were training in Clearwater, Florida, and everybody in Florida seems to have this. Blue Jays are having the same issue there. So I think over the next week, we're going to see the same thing. More players getting it. That doesn't mean they won't be ready for opening day, but I just, it seems to me that a lot more players are going to get this and we're going to hear about it soon. Yeah, I mean, I saw a story today about how there was a COVID outbreak linked to an MLB player's birthday party in Florida, and and there wasn't a you know a specific person named, but uh, we really need to make sure, just as a sport, that that kind of thing doesn't happen because it's going to put the entire season in jeopardy. It's going to put the health of a lot of people in jeopardy, uh, and uh, and beyond just the players, you know, there's there's people who work at the stadium, people who works in the clubhouse, like there's so many other people behind the scenes that are involved in in everything that's happening here, so. You know, it's we really don't know what's going to happen. I, obviously, this is so unprecedented on so many different levels. Uh, it's anyone who says that they know what's going to happen is is lying, in my opinion. 
No, I agree with you. And look, it's not just baseball players. There's a lot of knuckleheads in this country that are doing whatever they want right now. And July 4th weekend, I think by mid-next week, we're going to find out a lot more bad stuff. I hope not, but all I can do is control what I do and what my children do. Um, there was one other injury here that we don't think is related to COVID and basically don't wash your dishes. Jose Quintana of the Cubs, who, you know, I don't think was going to be a major fantasy asset to start with, but now he really won't be for the first month of the season because he cut his thumb on a knife while washing dishes. June, you wash your own dishes, I assume, yes? Yes, I do wash my own dishes. I mean, it's not it's not a spring training atmosphere until a player has a freak injury in a weird household setting. So uh, this is this is right on par for the beginning of the season, I think. Um, and let's uh, let's get serious again on something. You wrote a groundbreaking article earlier this week inside the rise of MLB's Ivy League culture. Stunning numbers, a question of what's next, and frankly, some stunning quotes here from Theo Epstein. From Farhan Zaida, I mean, that quote from Farhan is unbelievable. I mean, like, basically, a lot of white people are running baseball right now, and this may not have anything to do with fantasy, but it may to some degree. I mean, we all have our biases. So please uh, remind people of the article you wrote, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, so this is something that I've kind of noticed over the course of the last couple of years. I mean, I, I went to my first winter meetings uh, three years ago in, in Disney, at, at Disney World in Florida. And the thing I noticed immediately was that all of the prospective job, pro, uh, uh, job seekers were kind of cut from the same cloth. Uh, and I personally also graduated from an Ivy League school and I, I went to school with kids. I knew kids who are now working in baseball or were pursuing careers in baseball. And no, no offense to them, and some of them are my friends. A lot of them were kind of cut from the same cloth, kind of came from the same background. And so I kind of wanted to look into this because I think anyone who's been following the game over the course of the last two decades has, has noticed the influx of Ivy Leaguers who are running these front offices. And so, you know, I talked to to Chris Brow just kind of about this and he was he basically just told me, hey, dig into dig into the data and see see kind of what the numbers say for themselves. And so I, I put together an Excel spreadsheet and I found that since 2001, in 2001 uh, rather, 3% of teams were run by Ivy Leaguers. That's one person. It was Sandy Alderson, who's a, a Dartmouth grad. And in 2020, that number has risen to 43%. And so that that whole percentage increase, I think, is emblematic of a lot of different issues within the sport. Uh, and I think primarily... Uh, you know, baseball, uh, you know, you've been a long time baseball fan. Ba- baseball swings to these kind of trend extremes from uh, generation to generation. And so when I think, you know, in the beginning of the 2000s, when these analytics guys were getting hired, it was kind of seen as this groundbreaking, forward-thinking, progressive hire. And I think in, in, in 2020, we've gotten to the place where this is now the establishment. Uh, and all of the, almost all of the guys, or, or many of the guys who are getting hired, have very highly educated backgrounds from private schools that you know, have low acceptance rates, are very, very expensive. Uh, and they predominantly are white guys who have analytics backgrounds. And as a result, we're seeing uh, a lot of these front offices kind of become similar to that where you see people hiring people who look like them, uh, which, you know, that's an issue across a lot of American industries. It's not just limited to baseball. Uh, and I think you're seeing the types of entry level jobs within the sport change as well. And so you're seeing a lot of the the gateway into getting a job in baseball, being able to to code in R and Python and, and kind of have an analytics focus. And, and you know, Ivy League schools are obviously not all white there i'm a minority who graduated from one i have plenty of minority friends who graduate from them but when you look at baseball specifically it's 
all of the Ivy League guys are also white guys. Uh, and that kind of has a massive cultural effect in a way that I think is hard to quantify on a day-to-day basis. But there's small implicit biases that kind of come from that. And I also think that because a lot of these people come from similar backgrounds, uh, you're, you have kind of a less of diversity of thought uh, throughout the course of the game. You know, in, in meetings where baseball operations people are discussing moves, uh, people are a little bit afraid who may, maybe didn't come from a private school background or uh, come from an Ivy League background. You know, former players, you know, just minorities in general in those rooms are, are a little bit more hesitant to speak up because there's a, a little bit of groupthink there. And so one of the, I mean, one of, for me, one of the most interesting parts of, of reporting out the story and finding out was uh, hearing that uh, there's kind of been a decrease in what is colloquially known as feel within the game, which is basically just people skills, you know, uh, an ability for someone to relate to another person. Uh, and I think a lot of people who have been around the game for a while over the course of the last 10 to 15 years. I've seen uh, that kind of feel decrease uh, where players are getting treated a lot more like financial assets. Having this kind of Wall Street culture has has kind of permeated the sport where you know, front offices kind of have less of a, a close relationship with the players. And I think that's partially played into the, the negotiating, negotiating dynamics that we've seen over the course of the last couple of months with, with them trying to restart the season. Uh, but I think it's just also just engendered a, a general distrust between players and fans. And, you know, I think that, that kind of culture stems down from the front office to the ownership and has trickled down to the media and the fans to a certain degree. Cause I think, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, in the last decade or so, we've seen an influx of analytics writers within the sport who, well, you know, I love men- reading many of these analytics writers, but I think there's been a less of an emphasis on storytelling uh, in, in just kind of the general baseball world as well. And so I think that this whole Ivy League culture has uh, basically had a small effect in, in on the culture of the game in, in many different ways, in ways that we it's kind of hard to see on a day-to-day basis. But uh, now is the time where, where folks are, are listening. And I've, I've gotten a really, really great response from from people all around the game, you know, NL teams, AL teams, people who run front offices have reached out to me and talked to me about how this is an issue that they've discussed over the course of the last couple of years uh, and that this is now the time to try to find a way to address it. I had someone reach out from the commissioner's office who acknowledged all of these problems. And, and I think Major League Baseball is at a place where, you know, you can talk about diversity all you want within the sport. But uh, the per- I mean, the person I talked to in the commissioner's office specifically was basically said, uh, you know, you can put out a- all the statements, anything you want on social media, you can donate all the money you want. But at the end of the day, the league is going to be judged for their actions and what the demographics of, you know, the, the executives and powers look like. And so, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that there's going to be a change. But, you know, I as a minority in this country, you kind of have to see it till you t- to believe it, I think, to a certain degree. And I can't even imagine. This is a year of change in our country, and hopefully a lot more change is to come. And hopefully your story can, can help change minds. And anyway, I'll leave it at that. Excellent job. And you can check out his story on the MLB page. It's in the right navigation. But if not, you can Google June Lee's name and find it there as well. Uh, speaking of minorities and dealing with baseball, let's talk about the movie Sugar, which I had never seen before. I watched it this past weekend, sitting on my hammock on my phone. And uh, yes, it's been nice every day in the Northeast. So I'm, I'm sitting on my hammock, baby. And um, I'm social distancing, too. I really enjoyed the movie. I wouldn't call it an upbeat movie. I would call it an accurate portrayal. Not that I've ever lived that life. Um, but um, you labeled it as one of your favorite baseball movies. And I can understand why. So please discuss that. 
Yeah, I think one of the things I love about this movie without kind of giving away the ending is that it's it kind of takes away the romanticism of baseball and really grounds it in reality. This is a story that I think is is common, you know, a, a, a Dominican player coming over to the United States or, or just someone from, um, you know, one of the Latin American countries who are providing family, family with financial support and kind of have all of this pressure on their back and... I, I think it really kind of portrayed a lot of the small moments well of, of the immigrant experience, kind of the isolationism, the loneliness that a lot of these guys feel, the fact that their families are so far away, uh, and, and the difficulty of just culturally transitioning into the United States on top of pursuing a career in baseball. Uh, and so one of my favorite moments in this movie is when uh, Sugar is in a diner uh, in, in Iowa and he he orders French toast over and over and over again because that's the only thing he knows how to say in English and knows how to order. And I think that's a story that you know is we've heard among Major League Baseball players. That is a story that is common. You know, people go to McDonald's and order a Big Mac because the Big Mac is the only thing they know how to order. Uh, and so there's a nice little moment in the movie where the waitress comes over and kind of teaches Sugar about the different types of eggs and how to order different types of eggs. Uh, I think there's a lot of really small moments in this mo- movie that kind of are so specific to the baseball immigrant experience that I think really kind of separate this for, for me personally as, as a movie that feels truly authentic uh, to the to the uh, experience of a lot of non-white baseball players uh, in this country. I agree with you and I was going to say that's my favorite part of the movie as well when this white waitress is trying to explain to him show him the different types of eggs and then he can order eggs instead of just French toast. I, I, I found it sad that this is, you, you know, you're taking a, a young teenage Dominican player, maybe he's 20, dumping him in Iowa, he doesn't speak the language, and you're asking him to perform, and there's only so many people he can even talk to. His manager doesn't get him, that's clear, and and ultimately, he's not going to play. And that's, you know, I don't want to give away the ending either, but like baseball becomes not as much fun to him is what I got out of it. And um, you're right, the pressures. It, it's a very good movie. Um, I don't... It, it's based on probably a million true stories. You know, that's the thing. We've talked about all these movies, you know, Eight Men Out, Major League, based on stuff. But this is actual real life based on something that happens every day. It's going to happen this summer. And now there isn't going to be an Iowa. There's no minor leagues. So I was thinking about it. And what are these players going to do? Now they're going to be in actual camp. But so it might be easier for I hope it's easier for them. Well, I, I think this movie, in certain ways, is kind of a teardown of the idealism of the American dream, to, American dream to a certain extent. Because you know, you come over to the United States with this idea that you know, he, at the beginning of the movie, he talks about playing in Yankee Stadium, and obviously things don't go the way that he would have expected. Uh, and so, uh, it's it's you know, there's I think it starts off in this very romantic place here in the Dominican, and everyone's kind of talking about the love of baseball and uh, pursuing their passions, and then you kind of get hit with reality. You know, uh, you know instances of racism just the general difficulties of transitioning into a country where you don't speak the language you know being in a clubhouse where there's not many other latin players who truly understand what you're going through having a manager who you know on the surface says that they know what you're going through but you you know you can see kind of see in that scene that he doesn't really get it uh and so i think i think that's an experience that's common and i've heard it from a lot of different minorities in the sport uh you know and it's a story that I think goes untold a lot because uh, a lot of baseball writers are white and, and a lot of baseball writers you know, don't know how to speak Spanish. And this is a story um, that I hope can help people empathize with just this, the, the many different life struggles that kind of come with coming to this country on top of even just pursuing a career in professional baseball in the first place. So the, the three tenets of our reviews each week, artistically, was it a good movie? 
did they, they tell the story well enough? Does the plot hold up? I'd say yes, definitely a good movie. Um, and I, I think it was entertaining. There was certainly a motive. Uh, technically, as a baseball movie, yeah, I think it's believable. He throws hard. He's a pitcher. And um, I thought that what happened in the movie was accurate. You know, the minor leagues portrayal there. Timelessness. Unfortunately, it stands the test of time. I say unfortunately because I don't think things have changed. It's basically a documentary, June, um, told in like a in, a in a different way, but it's in documentary form to some degree as well. And I think the movie holds up. And the movie's about ten years old. Um, I don't know if anything's changed in that time for players coming from Latin America. Unfortunately, I don't think anything has changed. You know, I had I had the experience of talking to a minor leaguer who was traded at the start of the coronavirus, and he was talking about all of the same issues. Uh, it, it, that kind of pop, pop up in the story, you know. Uh, I think one of my favorite parts about this movie, funny enough, I watched it the first time for the first time in Spanish class in high school uh, about ten years ago. But uh, uh, they, they, the way they casted in this movie, they they picked people off the fields in the Dominican. I thought uh, Algenis Perosoto, who who plays Sugar in the movie, uh, it's a it's a pretty understated performance, but I thought is very very emotive, and I thought he was very very charismatic in, in the lead role, and I thought that. Uh, the baseball in this movie is probably among the best baseball that you'll see on screen. It, it lo- authentically looks like uh, a minor league game. Uh, and uh, I, I personally just, I think this movie is, is just extremely well-crafted in a lot of ways. And I think is, uh, I think it's just, it, it's going to, it's going to continue staying the test of time because at the end of the day, it's an immigrant story and it's a story about loneliness and isolation uh, to a certain degree. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I think it's, I think it's incredibly powerful. I agree with you. Well said on every uh, every part there. So sum us, sum us up for us. The last three months, we've talked about movies every Thursday and today on Friday. Um, your favorite baseball movies, and then maybe some movies that we did not discuss on the show that people should also be watching. I, kn- I know I'm not giving you much lead time on this, but if you could just you – know, I'm sure you could think of a, a couple baseball movies we did not discuss that people would be better off watching. Uh, I mean so- – Bad News Bears was a movie that I had never watched before, you know, this this movie podcasting that we've been doing over the course of the last couple of months. And that is something that that's probably a movie that I'll I'll probably watch again at some point. Um and is is now one of my favorite baseball movies. Uh I think I think revisiting a lot of the kids' movies uh as an adult has been an interesting experience just because you you kind of understand the effect of nostalgia to a certain degree and 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 the role a movie plays in in, in a person's life and how it how uh you know, being a kid can kind of help amplify the the gloriness of a movie to a certain degree. Um, Henry Rowan Gardner, <laughs> check, <laughs> <Yes>. check him out. <laughs> I've I've never seen Rookie of the Year, honestly. Um, That's that movie. It, it's it's. I don't think it's a good movie, but it's it's still a movie and it's fun. And not every movie has to be, make you think or make you cry. I mean, some movies are just for pure enjoyment. Major League doesn't make you cry; it's for pure enjoyment. Um, like, I never saw I, Major League Two. You don't want, you don't need to, <laughs> I, I don't want to be mean. Maybe I know the director, but like, you don't need to see it. It's not, it's a disappointment. Um, I, I told you a month ago, breaking away this cycling movie from Indianapolis is fantastic. It's one of my favorite uh, sports movies. Not every movie has to be about baseball. There's other good, you know, movies as well. Breaking away is a movie. I, I definitely recommend if you haven't seen that. Um, what other baseball movies did we not discuss? We didn't discuss uh, 61, the Roger Maris movie. Some, some people tweeted about that. Uh, Billy Crystal. That's that's a good movie as well. I, w- I actually watched that growing up once. Yeah, that, that's a nice portrayal. You know, and going back to Sugar a little bit, people just assume that baseball players have it easy. Hey, they make all this money. They're all happy all the time. They're just as miserable as the rest of us, you know, to most most degrees. In fact, maybe more so. 
And Roger Maris was not enjoying himself during 1961. And I don't think that Pure Sugar, uh, what's his name, Miguel, was enjoying himself in this movie. So maybe that's, you know, we don't realize that. We just assume that everybody's so happy. That's the persona they give off. But maybe they're not. They're just like us. Um, any other yeah, when you, have, when you have fame and money and you have everything that, you know, on the surface or the, on, the, on kind of a shallow level that, you, you know, everything that you can enjoy, the, the glories of being in America. Uh, but I think, you know, Sugar, to a certain degree, I think is also a movie about connection and seeking belonging. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's, he's in Iowa and I don't want to give out, give out the ending. But uh, I think it's really a movie about kind of seeking belonging and finding a group of people who you feel like you can fit in with to a certain degree. And most people assume that it, life is about fame and money. And let me just tell you, people, it's not. It's not about that whatsoever. I know people who have fame, know people who have money, work with them. They're miserable. It's not about that. Be happy. Live where you want, with who you want, do what you want. You'll be a much happier person. It took me a little while to realize that. But and anyway, enjoy your life, June. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being a part of our – you've been a part of our family this entire summer. And now with July 4th weekend and baseball returning, it's kind of changed a little bit. But please, everybody, check out June. June is a, one of the best writers at ESPN.com, and he does a terrific job. It's not just this article this week. And we'd like to have you on again at some point in the future to talk about issues that might have something to do with fantasy baseball, which we're going to try to focus on for the next two weeks. But thank you so much for joining us, June. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And hopefully we'll actually have some baseball to talk about. So I hope so. We all hope so. Thank you. All right. See you guys. See you. Take care. Be safe, please. All right, so Julie, what a fantastic guest that we were lucky to have for these last two or three months. I don't know when we started, but lots of movies that either – I'd watch most of them. I think Sugar's the only one, Kyle, that I did not see um, leading up to that I, I needed to watch. I didn't need to watch any of them over again, which maybe is unfair because I'd seen them all. But um, Sugar was really good, and I recommend it. And um, it was nice having June on because, you know, it's not all about fantasy. We're still talking about baseball. as People – Young people, somewhat like June, that are breaking into the business always ask me, what do you need to do to be a good fantasy writer? I'm not a fantasy writer. I'm a football writer, a baseball writer, a basketball. I'm a writer. (laughs) I was a writer when you weren't even born, Kyle. And when I was working at the Washington Post, if you can't put your words together and get your thoughts across and have your own style, you're not going to be a good fantasy writer. You have to be a good writer. Of anything. I covered politics. I covered, you know, everything. And then I fo- focused on sports. And then only in the last, I don't know, 15 years was it fantasy sports. But I don't write these articles just for fantasy players. I write them for baseball fans and football fans, too. So I hope that gets across. But when people ask what I do, that, to me, is the most important thing. If you can't write, you're not going to be a good fantasy writer. So don't try to be a fantasy writer. I think that's valuable to kind of drive home today into the next generation because, like, Newspaper. Even when I was growing up, newspapers were a big deal. And now that those are kind of fading out, like the ability to write, I can see where I would go by the wayside. I want to be a big personality. I want to be famous. I want to be on TV. I want to be the face of whatever. But the ability to write and communicate through that platform, I think, is always going to be valuable in different ways now than it was 10 years ago. And it'll be different in another five. But I think what you're saying holds weight. Like having your voice come through the paper, come through the computer screen, the app, wherever you are, I I think it holds a lot of weight, and it's a good first step to take. I think so. I try to write as if I'm just having a conversation with somebody, and maybe that comes across. And, and by the way, you say five years, it could change. It could change in five months. Yes. Like the world is changing as we speak, and um, and hopefully in a positive way. Let's try to do some baseball here. You have a trivia question, I'm sure, and I'll try to answer it. 
Yeah, I, I tried to keep it simple. I think you might be able to actually get it. Can you name the two players last season that had at least 75 extra base hits but failed to hit 30 homers? Now, I know one of them because if you ask me just that general question, mm-hmm. my first guess would have been Nicholas Castellanos, who hits a million doubles but has never in his career actually reached 30 home runs. He's got to be one of them. He is one of them. 88 extra base hits, just 27 homers. Do you think he hits 30? Do you think he gets yeah. it? Or is this what he is? He, you know what he is? Because I've studied Alec Bohm. Alec Bohm is like Castellanos. I don't think Alec Bohm of the Phillies is going to be a major home run hitter, but he's going to be a major extra base hit guy who annually, I think, in a full season next year, 25 homers, 40 doubles. That To me, that's what Alec Bohm is. That's what Castellanos is. Now, he hit like 55, 60 doubles last year. I don't know if he can re- do that same thing again, but he's like the poster boy for your question. And yeah. from in a way, he's a little bit overrated in fantasy because he's, he's never going to, I don't think, hit 30 home runs, even in Cincinnati. It's not the ballpark. It's his swing. That was going to be my question. Like, when you see somebody hitting that many extra base hits, does it mean that's who they are? Does it mean there's regression to come and that he's going to hit another 90 extra base hits? But a third of them are going to be homers. Well, I think in the case of Castellanos, a lot of people in the analytic community say if you hit a lot of doubles, it will automatically morph into home runs. And fantasy managers keep assuming that Castellanos is eventually going to turn these doubles into home runs. And maybe he will now that he's in Cincinnati. But it seems to me his swing is made for doubles. And some of them will go over a fence, depending on what the baseball feels like. (laughs) But... A lot of them to me, I, I just think he's a really good hitter. He could hit 290 with 25 home runs and, and 90 RBI every year. That's a good, solid, consistent player, but he's never going to hit 40 home runs or even 30 maybe. He may never hit 30 home runs. It'll still be a little overrated in fantasy, but still a good, reliable player. So I like him. I'm trying to think of the other guy with all these doubles. Basically, it's a guy who hits a lot of doubles. Like Javier Baez did not hit 30 home runs last year. I'm not sure if he hit enough doubles because it wasn't a great year for him. You might need to give me a hint so we can move on to the hash browns. I, I, I'm trying to think. I didn't think that Bogarts hit 30 home runs until I actually looked that up or until we said it on a recent show. Baez incorrect. I am wondering if you think this new player will be like Castellanos or if he has more home run upside. Obviously a young guy. Also plays in the NL. He had 24 homers last year, if that helps. Young guy, infielder, NL, 24 homers. I mean, I'm thinking of a right-handed batter here, if you're saying it's like Castellanos, because that's how I do my comps generally. Is this a right-handed batter? Is this a lefty, a switch? I mean, infielder in the National League. Let me think about who's in the National League. I mean, obviously, somebody could be looking it up while they're listening to our show right now, so I don't waste too much time with this, but... Um, a switch, if that helps. I don't know if it will. A switch hitter. Okay, and he's young. Yep. In the National League. Yeah. Jeez, there's not and a your lot division. of... Your division. Oh, it's not, it's not Ozzy Albies. Ozzy. 75 extra base hits, 24 homers. Do you think he has 30 home run upside? No. I, I, I almost view him as a, one of the – see, I have no basis to say and or write this, but I view Ozzy Albies as one of these players who was generously the most from the new baseball. You know what I mean? Like, how is Ozzy Albies, Ozzy Albies hitting 24 home runs? When he was in the minor leagues, he wasn't hitting any home runs. Came to the majors and hit a bunch early on and then settled down, not in 2019, but in 2018. As like a guy, Ozzy Albies should be hitting 16 to 18 homers a year, stealing 20 to 24 bases, batting 280, batting second, scoring runs. That's who he should be. I, I don't see Ozzy Albies as a 30 home run guy. 
He's built like me or you. So if he has 30 home run upside, we got we to gotta like our chances, right? Look, I in my softball game on Sunday, like everybody was hitting home runs except me. I'm hitting these line drives and and these little guys. Like the the, the fence was not that far away. I, I just think I I hope, and we won't know this because there's only going to be like three, you know, spring training games. But I hope that baseball is not like it was last year. That's just too many home runs. It's not fun for me. I, I want a baseball game that doesn't have to be like 1978, but I would like a more neutral baseball. So it's a more neutral game. I'm fine with a designated hitter. I don't want to ever see pitchers hit again. Agreed. But I want to see a baseball that's more like three and four years ago, not like last year. That was a joke. I mean, these fly balls, these pop-ups, broken bat pop-ups were leaving the stadium. I'm sure, I want to see what Jorge Soler can do with a neutral baseball. I do. I'm with you. And I, I, Soler is a specific example. I think he hits for power no matter what you're throwing at him. But I, I agree with you on the whole. You know, and then Ozzy Albee should not be hitting 30 home runs. Um, Scott Kingery should not be hitting okay. that many. 24 seems like a lot. Now, how many home runs get hit this season? Like, you can make the – I wrote an article about what to watch for in summer training, basically the next three weeks. And we don't need to discuss it. People should read it for themselves. But, man, even after writing it, I'm not sure about some of these things. I mean, pitchers are going to be hampered early on because they're not stretched out. But there's going to be so many pitchers in these early games. Maybe I'm wrong about hitters teeing off. If Mike Trout has to face seven different pitchers in a game the first week of the season, they're all going to be throwing 100. Why wouldn't they be? Every team's going to have 15 active pitchers and like a 10 in their bullpen. So they're all rested. And you're not going to be able to face Dallas Keuchel the third time around. Maybe not even the second time around. And that's going to be tough because you, if the hitting goes down, you're like, oh, okay, it's a year of the pitcher, but we're not sure the starting pitchers are going to hold a lot of value either. So I think it's going to be a unique year. I think I'm excited to play fantasy in 2020. I'm not excited to try to learn from it for 2021. I think it's a good idea. I've seen my friends doing this in their leagues. If you're in a keeper or a dynasty league, don't use those players. Just have a redraft. Just solidify your rosters. They're done for this year, and you'll resume them in 21. Salaries don't increase. Years attached to the player don't increase. Just have a redraft and a fun nine- or ten-week season. That's what I'd like to do. I have a keeper league, and I don't want to keep playing it. I agreed to play it because I thought that's what everybody else wanted to do. I agreed to pay money because I thought everybody else would do it. But I would really like to just hold my players so that their contracts don't keep going up. And... um, just have a fun nine week season with my friends. That 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 seems better. I have a bunch, I have a two or three leagues like this. They're all doing something different. And look, I just hope we get sixty games of baseball. I, I man, with the Phillies and Blue Jays placing players on the on the injury list, and we know why. It's it's a little discouraging. You know that people are going to act irresponsibly this weekend. Not just young people, but. People in their 20s. I know you will act responsibly. I will act responsibly. For the record, I'm 30, but yes. You don't feel 30 to me. You you feel a lot younger. But But yes, I will be responsible. (laughs) Um, Anyway, let's get a couple hash browns in here before the weekend. And people, we're going to keep doing Mondays and hopefully Thursdays until the season ends. So please, Monday's show, Tristan should return. We should get a lot of hash browns in. So if you send hash browns, what do I think of Garrett Cole this season? We will answer that on Monday's show. We could do a whole show on hash browns if you send enough of them. What do we got for today? Yeah, flood my feed with them. Don't be shy. We'll take on 
Any questions? Obviously, you've got your rankings updated, but any draft concerns, any strategy, any player comps you want, bring it on. Zach, he wants the rest of his league to catch up. He's been listening to the podcast and know you knows that you prefer points to Roto in the shortened season. He wants you to give his league mates the elevator pitch, the 30-second spiel as to why they should be ready to make that change this year. Yeah, and did you see AJ Mass, our points league expert, was recommending Roto? I think what I mean to say is they can't be a head-to-head league this year because you're playing six or seven weeks of the regular season, which is not nearly enough to separate the good teams from the bad, and then two weeks of playoffs. So don't play head-to-head. I think Roto can work, but the problem with Roto versus points in a two-month season is everybody's going to have the same number of wins, saves, stolen bases in the final week of the season, which makes for just too much craziness in that final week, and I don't want to see a five-way tie in stolen bases, which you would never see over a six-month season. In a points league, everything everything that they do on the field corresponds to a point in points leagues. So to me, AJ Mass's points league style is the best way to do a shortened season because the better teams would separate themselves a little bit. Even Garrett Cole, who will not win his first start because he's not going five innings, in a points league, his three or four innings are going to be really valuable if he strikes out eight or nine and doesn't give up a run. That's the difference between a points league and a roto league in a shortened season. Garrett Cole's first three starts, if he doesn't go six innings and he may not win any of them, in a points league, there's still value to that. I don't like guessing at wins or quality starts in a season like this or the closers blowing saves in the 10th inning because they already have a guy on second base. I know it's an unearned run, but it's still different. In a points league, that takes care of itself. And I like points leagues. I like Rota better. I was weaned on that a long, long time ago before you were born. But in a points league, I think this year it works better. I actually don't think I have any leagues that are a points league for right now. I wanted my long-time league to change it. I But we can't even agree on anything in that league. So the commissioner just took charge. The commissioner in my old-time league did the best job I've seen. He said, you know what? 16 people all emailing and all disagreeing is not going to work. Here's what I want to do. Everybody respects this guy, and everybody agreed to his plan. That's the way to do it. You can't ask for much more than that. That's good to have that kind of trust in your commissioner. Matt wants to piggyback on your idea of moving off of head-to-head for this year. You already gave him the points rundown. If you were going Roto with a new format, say your league's normally head-to-head, you're going to Roto, what categories are you putting in for 2020? I take wins out and go to innings pitched. Agreed. There's no, way, there's no way you can rely on wins in this short no. season. No way. There's going to be tandem starters piggybacking off each other. Nobody's going five innings early. <laughs> I just played a sim league game on Dynasty League Baseball in which Kyle, Kyle Freeland, started the game through four like innings of one-hit shutout ball, but because okay. it was 95 degrees out, they took him out of the game, pinch hit for him, Brian Shaw relieves him, gives up like five runs in the next three innings, and gets the win because Rockies had scored enough runs. I thought that's ridiculous. They're not going to change the win rule. They have enough trouble even getting on the field for this year. So my take the 10 normal categories, and we should have this discussion with Tristan on Monday because he's a lot smarter than I am. Wins can't happen. It has to be innings. I think – I don't know if saves plus holds works because there's going to be a million holds this year, right? Won't there be more holds with more pitchers? So I think so, and yeah. I Are think I'd get rid of batting. Teams? Batting average is a bad category to start with. That category should be OPS, OBP. Or, 
or OBP because that's they're more valuable. You know, when when Kevin Biggio bats two twenty this year and nobody wants him in fantasy in an on base percentage league, his OBP will be three sixty and he'll be twelve for twelve on steals with nine home runs. Kevin Biggio is a very interesting player, and there's very few guys like him. And he's more valuable in a sim league or in a league and a fantasy league that counts uh, the walks. Just ignore it. And by the way, his batting average is not going to hurt you as much as it, as say like a guy who bats a million times. Adalberto Mondesi, over 60 games, is say he bats 240 times and draws 10 walks. Well, that batting average is really going to hurt you. All right, and our last question for today comes from Orion. He wants to know which AL pitchers you're more likely to target now that the NL pitchers experience a little drop in value given the universal DH. I redid my rankings, and I dropped all pitchers, all top, like, 100 pitchers to the point where I don't have – I have Garrett Cole now at number 19 and DeGrom at 20 and the next pitcher at 25. Todd Zola makes an excellent point in his article and in his rank and his projections. American League pitchers are probably more valuable than National League pitchers now. Um, why is that? The designated hitter is part of it and the divisions that are playing each other. But like, it's, just, it's a major change. You can't say now, when in doubt, go with an NL pitcher if they're the same. So I don't – the one American League pitcher who moved up the most to me was Mike Clevenger. You have a two-month season. He's a dominant pitcher with a dominant ERA and whip and strikeouts. Yes, he could get hurt. He could be the pitching version of Aaron Judge or John Carlos Stanton. But his injuries have been different than those guys to me. So I moved Clevenger up to the number 10 starting pitcher, which maybe sounds crazy, but I think he moved up the most for me. Um, among starting pitchers, AL or NL, and I generally moved everybody else back. So I just kind of felt maybe I just had him wrong, ranked wrong originally. What's your take here? I mean, AL and NL pitchers now are even because of the DH. Right. Yeah, no, I like Clevenger. I like the White Sox guys. Like, Ronaldo Lopez was a guy I was taking flyers on anyway just because of the upside. I like him a little bit more now. It's not that any of the AL pitchers necessarily gained value. It's the NL guys falling back, but I'm okay with that. And a guy like Lopez, I'll take in the short season because maybe he strings three starts together. That's a big part of the season now when it wasn't before. So I'll take my chances on high upside guys like that, specifically now in the AL. And by the way, you know, we, we mocked Jose Quintana for doing the dishes, but Tyler Chatwood has to have a rotation spot now. Yes, sir. And It's and, locked up. And by I, the way, the Cubs, they haven't released the schedules yet, but the Cubs are going to play – 40 games in their own division and 20 games against the AL Central. Now that means they have to face Minnesota and all their home run hitters, but it also means they could face a lot of Kansas City, a lot of Detroit. Detroit. You know, I mean, Cleveland's lineup is kind of top heavy. Um, I'm just saying without saying here, but I, I'm picking up what you're putting down here. I'm liking it. I'm NL liking Central it. starting pitchers are going to get to face some bad offenses in interleague, whereas the Phillies. You know, like Jake Arrieta has already got an uphill battle just in his own division. Now he's got to face the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Blue Jays. How's Jake Arrieta going to get away with that? I, how how important do you think streaming is going to be in a short season? Because it's you see who they're playing. You're, there's a lot more concentrated schedule of games, and every start means more. So if you can face Detroit oh, twice in three starts, like that's huge. Streaming is huge, and I, and honestly. I might just fade starting pitching after I get four pitchers, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to be targeting um, Drew Pomerantz 
Yusmero uh, Petit. Um, I'm trying to think of relievers that are going to go to multiple innings here and could end up getting wins out of this. You know, in, in this sim, Yusmero uh, Petit is tied for the league lead in wins. And they're not even using a sim that's going to be accurate to now. Right. The short season, they're doing a full season sim and he's winning all these games. So anybody who can go two innings in middle relief, I mean, even like bad Nicky Pavetta could end up getting wins because, you know, he's going to be pitching the fourth. He's going to be piggybacking Arietta and Velasquez start. Now, he's not a good example because he's just not a good pitcher. Good, but yeah. you got to think of some starting – some some middle relievers who aren't going to get a lot of – aren't going to get saves, aren't going to start games, but they're going to be getting big innings here. The Padres have a bunch of these guys. Emilio Pagan could end up being a two-inning guy. And Adam, Adam Adovino, uh, Aaron Bummer is probably not going to close. He could close, I suppose. I mean, I'm trying to look through my rankings here. Freddie Peralta is a good pitcher who could be like a middle-innings guy if he doesn't start. Alex Reyes of the Cardinals. Um, these are all pitchers that I'm going to be looking at instead of nominal fifth and, fifth and sixth starters. I'm going to try to take one pitcher from the top. 15, maybe top 10, maybe two. I was going to say, preseason, you were looking at two of those guys, and then obviously Chatwood and then everybody else. And people say, you know, earlier we, we mentioned, if if hitters aren't going to do what we think they're going to do, why wouldn't you take more starting pitchers? It's because the value of the starting pitcher drops in relation to all the other ones because they're not pitching enough innings. So the middle relievers be, become more valuable. Um not than starters, but then they usually are. Anyway, we'll get to more of this on Monday's show. We're wasting time now. We want people to start their weekends. Maybe you're listening to us on a beach. Please, please wear your mask, social distance. You might not be thinking about this, but you're ruining people that are not taking this virus seriously. It's not just that you're going to ruin baseball or the NBA or NHL. You're ruining life in this country for other people that want to do things. And eventually, there's going to have to be a lockdown. I mean, like, just please be responsible. I, God, I can't. I'm so angry about all this. Um, but anyway, it's July 4th weekend. And uh, are you going to do anything special? Are you going to have, like, a cookout or something? Or We'll see what the neighborhood's doing. we got a very active neighborhood, so I don't doubt we'll have a socially distanced something or other. Maybe everybody out on their front. But I, we do have a hammock here, so at the very least, I've got a backup option. I've got three hammocks open right now i've got one outside on my front porch i've got one next to me in my office which i watch tv on and read and there was one that's downstairs that where my daughter's been using it to watch tv and then she took it outside onto the driveway um so we have three working hammocks right now which probably seems like a little bit too much for a guy who eats a third of a cookie but yes i'm all in on hammocks (laughs) so why have we not had a hammock podcast yet well, what would that sound like? What would be I could do a podcast from the hammock? I want the visual. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, people won't be able to see this, but there's my hammock, there Kyle. You can see it right blue. there. Oh my god, the caribou pad right there, living in luxury with the hammock right by the podcast studio. I and, and and by the way, not to pump our own company here too much, but we I have a friend who's got a projector on the side of his house, and tonight he's invited people over, socially distanced, to watch Hamilton. Uh, on Disney Plus, so I and Hamilton, it's going to be awesome. We're going to watch it here. I don't think we're going to be able to watch it outside, but um, we're going to be watching it here in our pajamas, and, uh, <laughs> and we can't Why wait. Up three hammocks, and you got yourself a party. Well, one of them is clearly an outdoor hammock. It can't oh. come inside. It's got like big poles. 
but the other two are indoor hammocks and they can be used inside. So yeah, we, we might do that, um, you know, responsibly. And we're going to grill inside. I've got the indoor grill that I'm going to use today. Anyway, now I'm clearly just wasting time. Anyway, thanks so much to June Lee for all, all that he's given us this, this summer, talking about movies. We value his friendship. His, his, his writing is fantastic, by the way. If you, even if you don't want to read the story that he wrote this week, which you actually should, it's, the, the quotes that he got from these people, unbelievable. But he's a fantastic writer, and he's going to do great things in his long career. Anyway, thanks to Julie. Thank you, Kyle Sapi, for your friendship and great job as a researcher and producer on this show. You do excellent work, and I hope we can continue to get to work with each other for a long time. Tristan H. Cockroft, I'm sure he's listening somewhere. See you on Monday, Tristan. I'm Eric Carabao. Please, everybody, have an awesome and safe weekend.